Hi, the Zigline peoples. You're listening to Your Morning Jacket. Uh, I mean, Your Morning Joe. Uh, damn, obviously, you're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart, weekly music news for the new music business. Take it away, guys. From popular information, how Ticketmaster gets away with it. For Midia, TikTok music could change the game. From an outlet called God is in the TV, a raft of cancellations show a broken touring industry that's linked to a deeper hashtag broken record crisis and why it needs to change. And from our friend Chris Castle and Hypebot, streaming platforms favor U.S., European users and artists. Well, Jay, we've just had the longest <laughs> pre-conversation that we've ever had before yes. we even hit record. So, That's true. Well over uh, an hour. We are well-oiled machines as we start uh, the, this episode of the podcast. So everyone, thanks for joining us. Jay and I are so happy you are here. And we're going to press the play or the record or the start button right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, on the air, 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 on the for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, so nice to see you. You have been just a machine this last week and weekend. You have just been all over. You got so many irons in the fire. When do you sleep, Jay? That's what I need to know. When do you sleep? Well, I drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> you know that. I do know that because we were that's one of the many things we were just talking about. But you've got, let's see. Yeah. So you've got behind the set list. The podcast with Billboard and let's see, yeah. I'm at, is it 311 that they just released, which is very exciting. We 311 was yes, that came out since you and I last talked, but also yesterday we dropped the behind the set list interview with Soccer Mom. Oh, that's right, which is Sophie Allison. Yes, and I just love her. I love her music. Uh, Circle the Drain is one of my. You know, all-time favorites. And remember how you and I would talk about when we, uh, when we like a song, we'll play it over like and 10 over times and over. You know, we should actually have yeah. a, a segment on the show for songs that we're playing over and over <laughs> and over again. Yes, because we will. I, and the first one will be "Circle the Drain" okay. from Soccer Mommy. If you haven't heard of Soccer Mommy, check it out. Um, we had a really great interview with her on the Behind the Set List. Uh, podcast that just dropped i think yesterday um i've been traveling i was in nashville um when it dropped and it's the first it's the first time that uh, glenn and i didn't do the kind of intro together um because i was i was traveling so um he did it by himself and he killed it he did a great job nice by the way the song that i cannot stop playing uh, to my wife's chagrin and to everybody around me's chagrin is Don't Tell Our Friends About Me, which is Blake Mills. I don't know if you know Blake Mills. I can't, I, yeah. I can't stop playing that damn song. It's fantastic. Uh, you know what? Let's keep that in mind. I'm going to put that in the notes and I'm going to build a playlist. Yes. And each week we'll talk about those songs that, you know, we play over and over. I remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about Mariana Cross yes. uh, by Ghost. You know, songs like that that you just, once you find them, you just hit play over, over, 
Absolutely. Yeah, super cool. Absolutely. And I'm going to be picking up my powder blue tux from the dry cleaners this week because it's Music Tectonics Conference. And I know uh, oh, yeah. you're going to be there with your yeah. leisure suit on and cruising around. It's going to be a fun, fun time, I think. Big lapel. That's right. Yeah. Music Tectonics. Uh, finally, it's here this week, uh, October 25th through 27th in Santa Monica. Uh, put on by uh, Dimitri Vitsa and his amazing team. Yes, indeed. Rock, paper, and scissors. on Wednesday, is um, that the 25th? I can, let me look at my calendar. Yeah, it must be on uh, the 25th. Uh, or is, I think it's Tuesday the 25th. What's today? Today's the 23rd, 24th, 25th. So it starts on Tuesday? That's sort of... Yeah. Now you're going to make me pull up a calendar. I know. Because I, I think it does. Yes, it starts on Tuesday the 25th. Okay. I have a panel on, on Wednesday, the 26th, right, at, at 11.30 called, uh, well, I don't have the title in front of me, but I know it's about data and A&R. We've been having a lot of discussions with um, A&R reps at various labels. And it's so interesting because no two A&R person people <laughs> do, do it the same way, you know. And for those that don't know that A&R world, it's not just about signing an act and hoping that they're going to be the next, uh, you know, uh, Pink Floyd, Drake, whatever. <laughs> right. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's, yeah, you sign the artist, but then you have to be the evangelist in the building yes. to get all the different Absolutely. teams excited, you know, like PR and marketing and sales and sync and all of that. So you're the cheerleader to get everybody excited about it, get the accounts excited about it via sales and marketing, which is now just called revenue generation. But then you also work with, you know, it's like, what it says, artist and repertoire. So you work with them on, you know, they're recording an album. Maybe, you know, you give some input into, some have more input than others. Um, some are actually involved really deeply with the producers, you know, with the production of it. So I think A&R is really interesting. It's not for me because some of the things that I fall in love with, they, you yeah. They're in heavy rotation in my car. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Well, and I think that's what you were just talking about is is something that the general public doesn't understand and couldn't understand, which is how you do have to sell the product, the artist, the album, the EP internally, and that's a in the, in building. the building. And you know, you you would think, well, why in the world would you have to do that? Well, because there's a lot of things they've got coming out. And exactly. Yes. That's exactly it. There's like a fire hose. Uh, you know, you and I were just talking about it on the show. There's a hundred thousand tracks uploaded every day. Yeah. So everything can't be a priority. <laughs> and so, right. you know, you have maybe a priority for EDM or country or pop or whatever it is, but you really need to sell it in house and it has to have a strong narrative and you got to get people excited about it. And when you do, Amazing things happen. But that's the second sales job that an A&R person has to do. The first sales job is to convince an artist or a group to sign with the label. Then you have to be involved in the production of the record, and then you have to sell it internally. And it's so it's yeah. two-thirds sales, <laughs> one-third. Yeah, it's not for the it's faint of heart. Not. It's Oh, and the other part of it, you know, this panel is about data mm -hmm. and A&R. Because you and I talk about... You know, kind of the lazy way might be that let's just watch TikTok, see what's popping and jump on that as soon as we can. And we've we've read about that. We've reported on that. There are some people that do that. Not so many, because a lot of those TikTok artists, they don't have a rich touring history. They don't have a big fan no. base, typically of music folks, and they don't have a repertoire or a catalog of music. And I think most of the A&R people that I talk to, they want something deeper. They want something that's going to be a career, not just a one-hit wonder. Yes, exactly. And and the the historical note uh, that every, I think we've mentioned this before once on the podcast, which is A and R historically artists and repertoire. Uh, that 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 title was created at an era when pre Beatles, when your A and R guy signed you as an artist and then found material for you to record. And so they had relationships with publishing companies and songwriters and they would bring in tracks for the artist to be signed. Right. And then of course, during our era, we said it was artists and restaurants because you were <laughs> with that expense account trying to wine and dine artists to sign. I've been in to yeah. a number of those dinners with, uh, with the, when the A and R guy threw down the card <laughs> 
because <laughs> yeah. he was paying. <laughs> yeah. The old days, maybe not the old days, probably still that way. So, um, and then we've got, so speaking of, of events, we've got something that's happening November 4th at the Grammy Museum, which is a conversation with Merc Mercuriatus, which is a very yeah. exciting event. A week from this Friday. Yep. Um, it'll be at the Grammy Museum. And for those that haven't been there in Los Angeles, it's a wonderful place. I've been there many, many times for different events. And we're going to be there, as you mentioned. It's called A Conversation with Merck Mercuriatus, who you and I interviewed on this very podcast mm-hmm. um, from uh, from Hypnosis Song Fund. Um, but I've known Merck, Merck, worked with him off and on for years. You know, he managed Elton John for a time. You know, he's worked with uh, a lot of great artists. He uh, was over at Sanctuary. Yeah. I, I worked at Sanctuary and when he was running the company. And uh, I have a great deal of respect for him, not only because he's a great uh, music executive, but more so, you'll remember when we recorded our interview with him before, well, before we hit record, we just talked about his record Yes, collection. we did. And we he still gets excited and he still plays those songs over and over and over again. And anybody in the business, you know, that still has that passion like that, I have a great deal. Yes, of yes, for. yes. And then Fran, his PR person, we've talked a lot. Talked, you've you've actually connected with her recently because, oh yeah, today yeah, actually because she's a Todd Rundgren fan, as both you and I are. Yes. And by the way, the book is called A Wizard of True Star about his production. That's the British book. And by the way, you know how. When Amazon books are out of print, you, like you go, I want to buy that book. If you want to go buy that book, it's sixty-five bucks. <laughs> so it's it's a really good yeah. book, but it's sixty-five bucks. So maybe it's going to go back into print. But uh, I found one on there. I was um, having lunch with someone who used to work very closely with Alice Cooper, and I mentioned to her, um, "There's a book out called Alice Me, I think it's called, and it's long out of print. It was like an autobiography and early on thing. And I said, I've, I've always wanted to read it, but you go on Amazon, it's like $600 right. for that used yes. copy because nobody's got yeah. it. And I, look, I'll give it back. You know, I just, I just want to read it. So, <laughs> exactly. um, speaking of that, um, you and I talked a little bit about this John Waite documentary that was coming out called the hard mm-hmm. way. And, and I told you, I was just so honored that they use, you know, my photo for the movie poster. And that was actually in the deal that when I licensed them the photo, like, look, I'll do this, but I want a copy of that movie poster. (laughs) And so it's in the contract. Anyway, I finally got to see the screener. It comes out December 6th. And I'm telling you, it is, it's phenomenal. First of all, what you realize is that John Waite as a, you know, from the babies, his solo stuff, um, bad English, you know, I had a couple of number one hits with bad English and then back to his solo stuff. He's got this body of work, that is just, it's, it's amazing, but he's also gone through and been screwed over by a lot of people in the industry. And I know he's not the only one, but he talks about it. You know, he had a, you know, maybe a problem with a manager or a a label that let him down and he just kept plugging away through all of that. But as you watch the documentary and see how things kind of unfolded, It'll make you laugh, and it will make you cry. Wow. It is brutal. Yeah, I want to watch it. And it's uh, it's going to be, apparently on December 6th, it's going to be on all the uh, on-demand streaming services. Yeah. And then it'll probably That's jump right. over to Netflix or Hulu or one yeah, of them. The hard way. The hard way, um, yeah. Yeah, don't, don't miss that. And I was asking you, I haven't seen this uh, docudrama, but you have. And I, I meant to watch it today when I was on this plane, but then I got caught up in that Elvis movie again. I, I just love <laughs> that. I've seen it twice. At the theater, I mean, the first twice. 10 minutes of that movie, I could watch over and over and over again. Anyway, there's a couple of people are telling me, you have to watch this. This came out in 2014. It's a kind of a docudrama on James Brown called Get On Up. Oh, yeah. And I mean, Mick Jagger was involved and Brian Grazer, and I think it was directed by Tate Taylor. But you saw it, right? Oh, it was great, yeah. And then Chadwick Boseman was, played James Brown and, you know, the late Chadwick Boseman. It's a fantastic movie. He did an amazing job. And, um, yeah, of course, then I think right after he... What was that other thing he, he was, was in? He was in 40, 42, the, which was the... The Jackie Robinson the Jackie thing. Robinson biopic, which was also fantastic. So, yeah, he was a wonderful actor and greatly missed. But the James Brown one is worth watching. It's fantastic, yeah. That one slipped by me. I don't know how... You know, I mean, you can't watch everything, but I was having dinner in Nashville um, with a friend this this weekend, um, and, and we were talking about, you know, as we do, records and documentaries and things like that. And he was raving about that one. I said, what... 
get Whoa. on up. And then I Googled it and I went, how, how did I miss this? How did yeah. I miss it? It was good. It was good. Now, speaking of Nashville, you just got back from in, yeah. in, from Nashville, to say the least. Your arms are yeah. tired. Um, anything exciting you want to share? I know some things you oh, can't man. share necessarily. I, I love Nashville so much and I get out there a lot. And I had some amazing meetings with, you know, uh, Symphonic and Apple Music and, you know, had some client meetings. Um, I can't really talk about the release yet, but I got to visit a, uh, a studio uh, called Smokestack uh, in Nashville and spent a couple of days there. And what was funny is I had a client friend of mine after we had a meeting, he goes, you know, where are you headed now? And I said, well, I'm going over uh, to a studio. Um, and he goes, oh, I'll give you a lift. So, you know, I put the top down on his Jeep and he drives me over there. And as we pull up, he starts to laugh. He goes, oh, this is where I recorded my album. Yeah, of course. I said, what? Anyway, um, it, it, the smokestack, it was just one of the most amazing experiences I've, I've ever had. Just uh, um, Paul uh, uh, Mokes runs this place, and he's a fantastic musician, and he's got this great studio. And it's, it's just a cool vibe because it's not like a clinical it's not like walking into a hospital or something like that. It's really more like when you walk in, it smells like a record store, mm -hmm. you know, like they're like incense and there's lots of vinyl in there and lots of knickknacks and guitars everywhere. There's probably a hundred guitars in there, either on the wall or on stands and different keyboards and a room full of amps. And it's, it was just breathtaking. And, uh, I watched, uh, a client, uh, record some songs and I, I'm going to be going back and I can't wait, but yeah, I had a really nice, uh, um, a nice, uh, few days in, in Nashville, some good friends, good food. Um, always, uh, always good to go to Nashville. And the guy, the jet setter of this duo, uh, not only does he wear very <laughs> happening leisure suits, but he is none other than Jay Gilbert. He is the co-founder of label and artist services company label logic. He's the curator of the weekly, your morning coffee newsletter, which of course, represents here in this podcast and he's also a former executive with a couple of companies you might have heard of universal music sony music warner music groups and fox home entertainment and a diehard vikings fan minnesota vikings yes sir they got a bye week this week yes. they're not they're not playing you can't lose when you don't as play. do my rams and this this gentleman right over here mike etchart is a longtime host of sound and vision radio formerly of sst records warner music capital emi and universal and uh what do you say mike we should uh we should thank our sponsors yes right? we should let's start with uh banzoogle um we love banzoogle i just built another site in banzoogle it's it's so easy it's like drag and drop you know you, it doesn't take a lot of no, time it's, super, it's super, simple, fun. super simple and we'll tell you in a second how you get a free trial of it but if you ever want to build your own website you know it's it, it's amazing. So um, Banzoogle uh, is built by musicians for musicians. It's an all-in-one platform. makes it super easy to build a beautiful website and an EPK for your music. All the features that you need for a professional website, everything is built in, like hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to help you sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding, and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to help you grow your fan list mail email still works and send newsletters uh, social media integrations and live support from their musician friendly team seven days a week your morning coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com try it for free for 30 days just use a promo code morning coffee all one word and that'll give you 15 percent off your first year of any subscription that's bandzoogle.com promo code morning coffee and we are also sponsored by hypebot since 2004 hypebot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered consumed marketed and monetized it is edited daily by founder bruce houghton with considerable help from alana bonilla hypebot and sister blog music think tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform bands in town you betcha bands in town over 65 million live music fans trust bands in town to get personalized concert alerts recommendations and messages from their favorite artists it's the number one artist service platform connecting over 5500 i'm sorry 550,000 artists with their <laughs> super fans is that more god that is it is more managers labels <laughs> agencies and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms big thanks to bandzoogle hype 
and bands in town. Boy, we certainly appreciate it. Could not do it without y'all. So big thanks. Never miss another show again. And by the way, it's also Grammy season, Jay. It is Grammy season already. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. Um, I did uh, the voting yesterday, today, um, which just happens to be Sunday, October 23rd when we're recording this. It'll drop tomorrow, but today is the deadline uh, meaning yesterday when you listen to this podcast. Yes. Am I confusing people? Yes. <laughs> anyway, I, um, I got my voting in under the wire. Um, I like to take my time. There's a couple of great publications that come out. Um, you know, Variety is really great. Um, uh, Billboard, Rolling Stone, they all have really great Grammy coverage. And it'll help me kind of put my list together because there's a lot in first round. There's hundreds and hundreds to choose from. So you really can't just go in there blind. You have to kind of have your list because there's different categories and so on. Anyway, I won't bore everybody with the details, but I did vote. I did do my round one voting. So that is now over. Um, Nominations are announced November 15th. That's a really important date, November 15th. And then the final round of voting You know, this is where it's all whittled down to just the finalists. This is where it gets real. Uh, The final round of voting is December 14th through January 4th. And I'm super excited uh, for the uh, announcements on November 15th and then the final round voting. And then the, the TV show, you know, the telecast of the 65th annual Grammy Awards. That is happening on February 5th. So you and I talked a little bit about the Grammys because one of our favorite Grammy shows was under lockdown, yes. oddly enough. It's fantastic. Remember? Absolutely. I mean, you and I have talked about this so many times privately, maybe not so much on the show, but just how it was magic that night because we're all locked down. But instead of having a big studio audience, they had the artists kind of almost in the round playing for each other. Exactly. As we, and it was, it was, really and we great. said, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about that. And it's very much, if you, if you're familiar with the BBC program later with Jules Holland, great music show. And it's very much set up like that where the bands are playing. And then the, the next up bands or the bands before are just right off to the side watching those bands perform. And that was hosted by Trevor Noah. And gosh, I, I remember Silk Sonic did a performance that was just fantastic. And Hyam and Hyam. And that was Harry amazing. Billy Eilish. Billy Eilish. It was just fantastic. And they and you could see their reaction. Yes. So when when let's say Hyam was performing, they would show the other artists like really getting off on the performance. And it was it was really fun. It was really special. It was really different. Um, gosh, I, I would love to go back to that format. Oh, yeah. And I still find <laughs> so myself, good. you know, I have saved or, or their favorites in my YouTube catalog of uh, stuff I like. A lot yeah. of the performances from that show, which was just fantastic. So, oh, yeah, yeah. So much. That's, that's, that's you know, the grand, 65th annual, annual Grammys. My God, it's been going yeah. on for a long time. 1958. 65th. Crazy. Where does the time go? Yeah. Well, Jay, we got to jump into these stories. So what do you say yeah, we get yeah, going? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We've been talking for hours and like, okay, we should probably do this at some point. (laughs) So uh, the first story we're talking about from popular information, how Ticketmaster gets away with it. You know, it just seems like that headline sure grabbed my attention. It did mine as well. And I will say, you know, this, the whole Ticketmaster thing, it it comes up all the periodic. It kind of comes in waves in terms of, of frustration and angst with. Well, I didn't understand it. You know, maybe you did. I. Until I read this piece, I didn't fully understand, you know, this incestuous kind of this company bought this company and that's why they have this kind of maybe monopoly on this area. This this is written by Judd Legum. And I hadn't really heard of this uh, website, uh, Popular Information, but I was so impressed with this article that it's the lead story in your morning coffee this week. Yes. And I'm getting a ton of feedback uh, from it. Um, and I'll just kick it off, you know. What, what Judd points out initially is that as the pandemic started to kind of wane, millions of Americans were excited to return to live concerts, right? Not only live concerts, but sports, comedy shows, everything. The cost of attending an event, however, has exploded, and we've been hearing that everywhere. The face value of these tickets has gone up so much, but, but an even bigger problem is these quote-unquote fees, mm-hmm. these add-on fees, they can be as high as 75% of the ticket price. That's just shocking. And, and he points out that worse, consumers are increasingly forced to buy tickets on the secondary market where prices and fees are even higher than that. He says 
These issues can be traced back to one company, Live Nation Entertainment. Yep. And so it's, as he says, in 2010, Ticketmaster was already a dominant player in the primary ticketing market. But that year, you may remember, the Department of Justice approved a merger between Ticketmaster and Live Nation, the world's largest concert promoter and Ticketmaster's only significant competitor in the ticketing space. According to a news report, uh, or a new report by the Economic Liberties Project, the merge company, Live Nation Entertainment, is a monopolistic company that can get away with ripping off fans and strong-arming venues. So it is, it's sort of a two, wow. two-pronged thing this article is really about. It's like the leverage that they're able to, to exert to get artists to play in their facilities and then yeah. how they handle the tickets and associated fees to the consumers. And I hadn't that. thought of it. I hadn't thought of it like that. And it was kind of eye opening uh, to, to see how he laid this out because he says prior to 2007, Ticketmaster controlled more than 82% of the primary ticketing market in the United States. 82%. No other company had more than a 3.8% share. At this point, Live Nation was Ticketmaster's largest customer. So in 2007, Live Nation ended its relationship with Ticketmaster. Then Live Nation launched, launched its own service called CTS. Live Nation began ticketing venues it managed, as you're pointing out, and competing for contracts with third parties. So by 2009, Ticketmaster had a 66.4% of the primary ticketing market, and Live Nation had a 16.5% share. You know, and the others kind of competed for the rest. Exactly. But as, as the article points out, an already dominant market player merging with its only real competitor would seem, it would certainly seem like a red flag for antitrust <laughs> in, uh, officials. And there were other concerns. Specifically, the merge company could use Live Nation's relationship with hundreds of popular acts from Miley Cyrus to U2 to pressure venues to use Ticketmaster's services. Nevertheless, the Department of Justice's antitrust division signed off on the merger with a few minor conditions. What? Ticketmaster was required to sell a small ticketing subsidiary called... Pacillon, I guess, to Comcast, and it remains a tiny player in the ticketing market, I guess, to this day. Live Nation Entertainment also had to promise, they had to promise not to retaliate against any venue that considers or works Mm -hmm. with another primary ticketing service. These and a few other requirements were memorialized in a document called a consent decree. How lovely. Ah, I think I see how How this is shaping up, right? So Live Nation Entertainment issues tickets. Ticketmaster, right? Mm-hmm. Manages venues, Live Nation, and represents performers with Live Nation. Ticketmaster has retained more than 80% of the primary ticket market and jacked up fees. On its website, Ticketmaster emphasizes that its ticketing fees are split with quote unquote clients, which includes the venues and promoters. But Ticketmaster's clients are often other entities owned by Live Nation Entertainment. <sighs> And if that, if that isn't galling enough for you, fellow listeners, what about this? Ticketmaster also began selling tickets on the secondary market where prices and fees are even larger. Ticketmaster's involvement in the secondary market gives it an, in, an incentive to allow scalpers and purchase uh, to allow scalpers to purchase tickets and then benefit from another round of fees and markups when they are resold. Tickets on the primary market are often limited and sell out in minutes. Oh. So they've, they get you coming and going. Now, I mean, honestly, I didn't quite understand this, and I'm starting to kind of see what people have been complaining about. You just talked about this consent decree, yes. right? Basically, they're making a promise like, we, you know, we'll be Honest good. engine. We're you, really good. You don't need no. any. Yeah, it's going to be fine. So in 2019, the Department of Justice determined that Live Nation Entertainment had repeatedly violated that consent dis- decree. Um, and they did so like shortly after it was signed. Shocking. Right. Knock me and over he, with and the here's a here's a part. Yeah, yeah, here's a part from the Department of Justice that they that they said. The United States has found that since 2012, defendants, Live Nation, executives have retaliated against or threatened venues throughout the United States in violation of the final judgments, anti-retaliation, and anti-conditioning provisions. These violations begin shortly after began shortly after the decree was entered in 2010 and have recurred throughout its term. Wow. Yeah. 
Okay, so you think that that would be reason enough to go back and slap them silly and do something with some sort of girth behind it, but instead of suing to unwind the merger imposing or imposing any financial penalty, the Department of Justice decided simply to make a few small modifications to the consent degree, degree, decree, excuse me. It extended the terms of a consent of a consent decree by five years, clarified that Live Nation Entertainment was not allowed to threaten venues, and imposed small fines if a future violation is discovered. These So they're saying don't don't be bad, you know, or we're gonna slap your hand a little that's bit. That's right. But by all accounts, since it agreed, you know, to that consent decree, Live Nation Entertainment has conducted business as usual. Yep. The threat of retaliation hangs over the heads of venues, and fees continue to increase. In the last two years, Live Nation Entertainment has continued to consolidate its market power, purchasing "quote unquote" a competing ticketing startup founded by former Live Nation executive called Rival oddly enough, and acquiring three leading international ticketing and event companies. It doesn't sound like they, they've been punished very, you know, badly. No. And this is, and this is kind of, um, I mean, this is not only, you know, we're, we're of course talking about music mostly, but this is for sports. This is all kinds of different things that involve right. tickets and you're just getting hammered. It says earlier this year, Senators Richard Blumenthal and Amy Klobuchar called on the Department of Justice to investigate the state of competition in the market for live entertainment, including potential violations of Ticketmaster Live Nation's updated consent decree. The senators said they were deeply concerned that the department's past enforcement and negotiated remedies in this industry have failed to adequately foster and protect competition. So then on Wednesday, a coalition of anti-monopoly groups, including the American Economic Liberties Project, Sports Fans Coalition, the Consumer Federation of America, and the Artist Rights Alliance, launched a campaign calling on the, part, on the Department of Justice to break up Live Nation Entertainment. Wow. wow. Wouldn't yeah. that be And amazing? there was some other legislation that you and I were talking about, this is last year, um, where they just wanted some transparency because mm-hmm. you and I know that when you go to buy a ticket, it'll say this ticket's $40 right. and then you get through there. And by the time you check out, it's like a hundred dollars yeah. and you're like, well, wait a second. I thought this was a $40 ticket. And so what this legislation they want to pass is, so it says right up front, this is a hundred dollar ticket, yeah. right? Exactly. And then you can break up where those fees go afterwards. But I've always been frustrated when I wanted to buy a ticket for an event, let's say locally, and there's all these service fees and all these handling fees and stuff. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'll go down to the Troubadour and I'll, I'll buy the ticket. Yes. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll do all the work. Just like when I was in high school, you know, I'd wait in line and I'd get the ticket at the department store and there wasn't a huge fee involved. It might've been 50 cents or something like that. Um, but a lot of these fees you can't avoid. No, no, no. And no. That's, that's really frustrating. Yeah, it is. Well, it's, we're going to have to keep an eye on this. But, uh, you know, but again, this, this has come up so many times over the last few years where there's like this big hue and cry about ticket prices and service fees and all that stuff. And it's, it's just, it seems to be in terms of legally and, and on a political level, it just seems so hard to get any traction for anybody to, yeah. to rein this in. And, it's absolutely well, absurd and insane, and I, sounds like they're doing it. Well, yeah, we'll I mean, see. You just said we'll see. you just said they they launched a campaign calling on the Department of Justice to break up Live Nation Entertainment. That's that's a pretty bold it statement. It is. It is. But we'll see if anything happens with that. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> all right. To be to be continued. I'm kind of fired up now, Jay. Uh, all right. Next for media, TikTok music could change the game. We talked last week about TikTok music as well, and uh, here's another article. Well, you know, it's it's the it, it's there's coming. a lot of conversation. Yes. Right. And this this is from uh, Mark Mulligan from Media, um, and it's run in the music industry blog. But we follow you know um, Media very closely because they do some of the best kind of stories and analysis and reporting and they're, they're just phenomenal. Um, and yeah, we have been talking a lot about TikTok music because what it looks like with their reso is that it's going to become not only a label, but a distributor. Mm-hmm. And that could be a big change to our industry. And as Mark points out, there's been a lot of 
a lot of talk for some time now, you know, that the parent company ByteDance is going to launch this music streaming service in Western markets. Because remember, it's already out there in countries like Indonesia, India, Brazil. Um, and they're, they haven't rolled it out in, in America yet. And they're going to roll out to some other um, countries. Um, but because of these new Twitter accounts, they kind of figured this out. And there's been reports of more than a dozen new markets that are being prepped. So it's coming. Mm -hmm. And again, we don't have a date on when it might roll out to North America. TikTok has become one of those central forces in digital music marketing ecosystem, eroding the cultural capital of traditional streaming services. Well, absolutely. It's a logical leap to assume that if TikTok becomes a key force in music discovery, it could also do the same for consumption, right? Yep. So while this is certainly the case, ByteDance, that's the parent company, you know, ByteDance's streaming opportunity is a whole lot bigger and more disruptive than just Resso. Right. So as they say, Resso is a perfectly decent streaming service, but similarly to YouTube Music, it only scratches the surface of what it could be. Both TikTok and YouTube have unique content, behavior, features, yeah. and culture that stand in stark contrast to standard streaming. It's difficult to translate much of this because of licensing constraints, but doing so should be the priority for both TikTok and YouTube. This will drive differentiation and help the industry carve out genuine new growth pockets rather than just unearthing the remnants of the addressable base for standard streaming. Of even more relevance to the music business, unless rights holders can empower ByteDance's streaming offering with something truly different, is the risk that its growth will largely comprise of switching Spotify subscribers. The music business needs the maturing streaming market to be about growth, not substitution. Perhaps TikTok uh, music Twitter profiles point to something bigger and bolder than Resso. But it's interesting. I think so. Yeah. I, you just Well, you just pointed or you just talked about something that I had this long conversation this weekend about. And that is that look at YouTube and TikTok. I mean, YouTube, yeah, they have YouTube music and that'll have the pretty much the same as most DSPs as far as music goes. But when you go onto YouTube, which is by far the largest streaming service yep. because it's got outtakes and B-sides and live things and things that just nobody else has um, that you can find there. And same with TikTok. TikTok. TikTok has things that you can't find anywhere else. And this friend of mine was telling me that he thinks the future of the business is what you just described, which is you take something like TikTok and YouTube and then you put that together with the hundred million tracks that you know Apple yes. just reported that they have. So you've got all of the you know majors and the indies and all of that stuff. But now you've also got some of what makes SoundCloud um, exactly. important. You've got some of this user generated mm -hmm. and some of these viral things. That is what he was arguing. That's the future of the DSP, not to just have five DSPs that have the same hundred million tracks. Yeah, exactly. So they point out here, discovery is consumption, which is a great, great way to start a, a paragraph. Actually, he said people used to discover music on the radio and then go and buy it. That model has been turned upside down. Now people, younger audiences in particular, discover most of their new music on TikTok or YouTube before going to radio-like streaming services to consume it. What is more, much yep. of the discovery that happens on TikTok is consumption. It is not just consumption either. It is consumption that streaming cannot replicate, which is an interesting point. This is before even considering the importance of lean-through creative behavior, such as doing a duet or a dance challenge to a favorite artist's new mm -hmm. track. Music is the soundtrack and often the catalyst to this consumption. But when that music is listened to on streaming, it is stripped of all that creative and cultural context. It's like only listening to the soundtrack of a movie. Movie soundtracks do well as formats, but they only exist because of the movies, as that is where the real value lies. All of this is why TikTok music service should be, could be, I should say, so exciting as it could provide both the creative and cultural context, not just the stripped down audio file. Wow. wow. Yeah. And this gets to that the reason is... why I am constantly on yeah. YouTube for stuff that, that I, that, you know, just all of this weird out of the out of the mainstream stuff, whether it's, you know, somebody showing me how to play a bad finger song on guitar or somebody with, you know, uh, where they break, somebody got a hold of the multi-tracks and you can listen to like, 
you know, the organ solo on Highway Star, you know, all these weird things that you can find there, but nowhere else. And, you yeah. know, again, if that's yeah. sort of somehow put together in a in some sort of a package, yikes. Seems like it's headed that way. Yeah. And it's really exciting to watch because we, you know, just over the last few years, we've watched music go from uh, consumption to really being access. Yeah. And yes, that consumption, what I'm talking about is like buying a CD and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, as they point out here, it's still consumption, you know, when you're listening to it on TikTok and YouTube, but I'm thinking of it as a different way. The other thing besides this moving to access to music is the participation. You know, yeah. when you and I were growing up, we didn't have access to Queen and Cheap Trick you know, until they played live and, you know, we got up front and, you know, we could see the shows and that was as close as we were going to get. But today you can participate with your favorite artists via the socials. You know, you can get in touch with them through, you know, maybe some uh, uh, OnlyFans or Patreon or, you know, whatever it is through their website. But it's you're participating and now with whether it's a dance challenge, whether it's you you know, uh, doing something with somebody else's music on TikTok, whether you maybe you're covering it, you're remixing it. Um, there's this participation that is really exciting too. So I, what you just went through, that discovery is consumption, uh, my, my mind is blown. Yes, yeah. And they've got a neat little chart here. It's, 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 it shows, it says, next generation platforms are creating three-sided marketplaces that operate as self-contained, virtuous circles. And they talk about consumption, creation, distribution. And it's a really interesting graphic that I can't really describe very well. But it's a great article. It's super thought-provoking yeah. and uh, very worth checking yeah. out. It, it might be a glimpse into the future. I agree. And, uh, you know, uh, kudos to uh, Mark Mulligan. Yes. And uh, again, from Media, we talk about Media a lot. Uh, Keith Joplin works there, and we always talk about how much we love um, his, uh, his series of uh, playlists and podcasts. Yes. You know, the Art of Longevity. And I mean, those guys, um, they're going to be at the uh, Music Tectonics uh, conference this week. So I'm looking forward to. Uh, you know, you and I, we should go and say hi to some of these Totally, guys. totally, totally, totally. Look forward to it. All right. Uh, next up, this is from an interesting uh, source that I was not familiar with. It's called From God is in the TV. A raft of cancellations yeah. show a broken touring industry that's linked to deeper hashtag uh, broken record crisis and why it needs to change. And... Yeah. Let me pull that yeah. one up um, again. And it, while you're doing that, this is a, a UK based uh, publication and a lot of these bands are UK based, but it doesn't matter because it's, it's the same globally. These issues that they're having with uh, touring, they're, they're happening uh, every week. You know, last week, Animal Collective canceled a European tour mm -hmm. that was due in November. Um, they said that preparing for this tour, we were looking at an economic reality it doesn't work, and it's not sustainable. The band explained that in a, in a statement. From inflation to currency devaluation, bloated shipping and transportation costs, and, and much, much more, we simply could not make it, the budget work for this tour, um, so we didn't lose money uh, if everything went as well as it could. You know, They are the latest in a long line of successful artists who have had to cancel their tours lately, uh, the touring industry is really in in a state of crisis. Yeah, so many so many forces making it incredibly difficult to be out there. So first of all, you just got so many tours on the road. A, you've got the insane cost of fuel. You've got just uh, inflation, just feeding everybody. It's really boy. And then of course, and we talked about this was it either last week or the week before. All of these dates that are getting canceled. A lot of dates getting canceled now, and actually a number of tours just completely getting canceled. So it has got all kinds of stuff kind of really contributing to a very, very challenging environment out there. Yeah, it's, it's really tough because, you know, a lot of these bands, especially developing artists, middle-class artists, you know, they ate sawdust, you know, for a year under lockdown mm -hmm. and they were so hungry to get back out on the road. And then, of course, as you, all those factors that you mentioned have made it so it's... It's really challenging. Now, you and I have talked about a couple of bands that have 
made it work, but they're the outlier. You know, we talked about uh, Walden, you know, the band Walden. They did a 50-state tour, and it was basically all funded by fans, Mm -hmm. and they even made it to Alaska and Hawaii thanks to the goodness of fans. And, you know, I work with the Accidentals, and they did a, I think it was a 40-date tour with Sawyer Fredericks, and a lot of those dates, most of those dates, they stayed with friends and fans and, you know, when they're in Los Angeles, they'll stay with, with us. And, but that's not sustainable for a lot of artists. They can't really sleep, you know, at their fans houses like Walden did, you know, across 50 States fuel costs are just crazy, especially here where we live. And, you know, vinyl is a petroleum product, as you always point out, and that's more expensive. Shipping, I mean, everything, hotels, everything is more expensive. And some of these artists that we talked to, like we interviewed the band Striper um, on the Behind the Set List podcast, and Michael Sweet was telling us that it's challenging just to find buses. And when you can find buses, you know, instead of $1,500 a day, they might be $3,000 a day. And you put all those factors together and a lot of artists are like, yeah, this doesn't make sense for me to lose money on this run. But of course, the tragedy of this is that, you know, we've on, on this has been principally the bread and butter ways that, it, that a musician can actually make some revenue. There's an, a 4AD recording artist called Sone. And in this article, they mentioned that they were the latest artist, artist to cancel. He was a, the latest artist to cancel his tour. And in a post in, on Instagram, he said, after a couple of years of no live music, so many acts are touring at the same time. I think in the boom years, yeah. tickets became disrespectfully expensive. I think COVID got us used to staying at home. A lot of my audience probably became new parents, including me, and there's a financial instability everywhere. When tickets don't sell, everybody down the chain loses money. Artists, promoters, live music venues, and staff. Tours at this level are under huge pressure to break even, only becoming profitable when the majority of venues are close to sold out, which is not the case with UK dates for for him. It becomes a huge risk for the promoters who book the shows, and it's a risk I'm sadly unable to take. So you've got to... And let me point out, you you said something like this has always been kind of where they earn their money, and that's true. But let's also point out that it's the ticket sales. Mm-hmm. That's that's a big part of it. But a lot of it these days, a lot of it's merch. Yes. And if you're filling up, uh, you know, a venue, those merch sales can be half of your revenue that year. And then one thing that they point out that is near and dear to our hearts, and we try to shine a light on this is what they call artist welfare. Yeah. And I'm just talking about just basic mental health. The The pandemic and the lockdown, all of that was really hard on a lot of us. And it was really challenging on a lot of different levels uh, for mental health. And you'll remember a few weeks ago, uh, Santa Gold announced that she had canceled her tour of the U.S. and Canada. And she said, I can't make it work. She offered... Uh, that in a message on social media, she explained the new reality for artists, you know, kind of post lockdown, every musician that could rush back out immediately when it was deemed safe, safe to do shows. We were met with the height of inflation, gas, tour buses, hotels, flight costs skyrocketed. Many of our tried and true venues were unavailable due to a flooded market of artists trying to book shows in the same cities and positive test results for COVID, constantly halting schedules, devastating financial consequences. And, you know, she wrote all that. All of that on top of an already tapped mental, spiritual, physical, and emotional resources of just having made it through the past couple of years, some of us are finding ourselves simply unable to make it work. So there's that mental health side of it too. I mean, we've all gone through hell and then to kind of come out of it, and struggle to make ends meet. It's just absolutely brutal. Yeah, exactly. And then at the very end of this article, we've got Shirley Manson of Garbage with a post. And it kind of, she's really kind of summing up the situation. She said, if the live yeah. scene fails, the whole ship goes down entirely. All you will be left with is, an, is the mainstream, no alternative perspectives, nothing loud, nothing dangerous, nothing weird, little last beyond one album cycle. That strikes me as a great sorrow for our culture as a whole. 
And yeah, so it's challenging again for these artists. If you're the Eagles, you're doing okay. Um, but boy, once you're below that level, it's just so many, so many forces sort of conspiring against you. And it's, um, it's pretty challenging times. And as we head into yeah. the winter with, with sort of a big question mark about what's going on with the, with the, uh, with COVID and other things like that, it's going to be, yeah, we're just yeah. going to have to keep an eye on this stuff, but boy, it, it's, it, it looks like it's going to be a yeah. super challenging winter for live music without yeah. a doubt. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, I'm glad that's not our last um, story because that that really kind of is uh, depressing. But um, <laughs> yeah. hopefully things will continue to improve on all those fronts. But uh, you know, especially that mental health side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's take care of each Absolutely. other. Absolutely. Well, our last story for the episode, Jay, is from our friend Chris Castle and Hypebot. Streaming platforms yeah. favor U.S. European users and artists. And that's a really interesting perspective that, of course, Chris Castle would bring to the party. Of course. Yes. Yeah. And as it starts with the, the, the quotation, the big pool revenue share method of royalty compensation is designed to overcompensate the English language, big names and reduce payments to artists performing in other languages in their own country. So this is something uh, can I, I had never yeah. thought about this, to be honest. I haven't really either until Chris brought it up, but can, can I just say that Chris is so good at taking something that we just assume is a certain way yeah. and then just shooting holes through it. You know, I remember one time we were having a conversation and I was talking about, I think it was Luminate, which has, you know, one service, which is kind of U.S. centric, and then you can pay a little bit extra and have uh, global data. Mm -hmm. And he mentioned to me, that's not really global data. They don't have every country in there. Right. And I was like, oh, oh Why I guess, not? yeah, <laughs> that makes that makes a lot of sense. But it's things like that and things like what you just mentioned, the big pool, which is pro rata, which we talk about mm -hmm. pretty much every week. You know, the pro rata model where, you know, you're kind of based on your market share, how much you get paid for streaming and, you know, how user centric or fan powered royalties, you know, is being, you know, Deezer has it. Um, SoundCloud has it like with Warner, they're doing a test, but we're still in our infancy there. But as Chris points out, he said, just look at the global top 50 on Spotify on any day, you know, that it'll show you that nearly all English language songs, you know, with few exceptions, these songs are performed by Anglo American artists released by major record companies. So I took him up on it and I went and looked and damn it. He's right. <laughs> Yes. He said, uh, these enterprise in quotation marks playlists largely take the place of broadcast radio for many users where Spotify operates and Spotify competes with local radio for advertising revenue on the free version of Spotify. So uh, Spotify's now former general counsel told the recent inquiry into the music streaming economy conducted, of course, by the UK's parliaments, by the UK Parliament's Culture, Media and Sports Committee. Our job is sucking users away from radio and Spotify uses its market power to do just that. And yeah. so, you know, due to this phenomenon, DCMS. yeah, local artists are forced to compete for shelf space with everyone in their local language and then the Anglo-American artists and their record companies. So you can see the the, the dramatic cha uh, challenge that a lot of these local artists have on on these playlists. It's brutal. Yeah, and and also let's not forget that some of these playlists and, and another friend of mine pointed this out to me. Um, we're used to looking at it in our country. Mm -hmm. So when we look at some of these playlists, today's top hits or whatever it is, we're looking at it in our country. But a lot of those top playlists vary. Uh, by country and especially in places like Japan and France, they have a lot more local repertoire uh, yes. than they have here. But Chris's point is, is well taken. And I hadn't really thought of that before, but we have these great playlists on, and not just on Spotify, on Apple music, on Pandora, Deezer, Amazon, and they do, you know, focus a lot more on English speaking Anglo uh, music. One trend that I've seen lately though, and, and uh, you and I have been watching this now a little bit closer than we typically do because of our friend Bruno Del Granado over at CAA, and that is the Latin music side. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people think of K-pop, you know, and those are, some of those are, you know, they might have an English chorus or something really catchy there, 
But, you know, I read this article about Bad Bunny not doing songs in English, mm-hmm. you know, uh, anymore. He doesn't need to. Yeah. And his, his audience has just accepted that. And, you know, his tours are some of the biggest in music history, and he's killing it. And you and I were on that uh, podcast, remember, a couple of years ago? Um, it's embarrassing to say the title because we're certainly not that, but it was uh, Who Knew, Smartest People in the Room. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and you and I were on there. And it, Tom Truitt does it. It's a wonderful series. Yeah. And this last week, uh, Bruno Del Granado was on Oh, was he was on? on oh, there. nice. Yeah. And uh, I couldn't watch it because I was on a plane. And when I landed in Nashville, he sent me a note with a link to oh, it. And nice. I, got, I got to watch it. And, I mean, I've learned pretty much everything I know about Latin music history. From Bruno, without <laughs> from a doubt. Bruno. Without a so doubt. So for those that want to know, you know, a little bit more about... Uh, the rise and rise of Latin music, uh, especially in the, in the, the United States. Um, uh, follow Bruno and certainly watch that podcast. Um, it's called Who Knew? Smartest People in the Room. And I believe it's on YouTube now. And it's just fun and it's an education. I mean, I mean, he managed, I think, Ricky Martin for 10 years. I mean, this guy has been in the deep into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how do we fix that? And and Chris mentions here local content rules. And as you may know, many countries implement local content broadcast rules that require broadcasters to play a certain number of recordings performed by local artists. That's on, is that on radio? Yes. Yes. Um but because streaming playlists, especially Spotify enterprise playlists or algorithmically selected recordings are an equivalent to broadcast radio, there is a question ah, as to whether national governments should and maybe could regulate streaming services operating in their countries to require local content rules. Implementing such rules could benefit local performers and songwriters in an otherwise unsustainable environment and i applaud that concept because that's they do it obviously in canada i think all broadcast radio stations have to play a certain amount of of canadian artists a lot of territories right yeah and and i guess what he's saying is okay if they have that for terrestrial radio um well he's he is saying that because you know one of the ways he kind of puts a bow on this discussion is he says that you know countries can respond to streaming's homogenized algorithmic playlist culture I love that. Many national cultural, many national cultural protection laws, it's easy for me to say, have a history of sustaining local culture. Like you just said, musicians in the face of Anglo-American top 40, there's no reason to think that these agencies are not up to the task of protecting their citizens in the face of algorithms and neuro marketing. Basically, we have these protections on radio. We need to extend those to streaming services. But here's the thing. We talk about this with payola versus playola is the public. Let's take the United States. The public owns the airwaves. Mm -hmm. And so you can't pay to have something played on the radio unless it's disclosed. But with streaming, the government or the country doesn't own that. So you're comparing apples to chainsaws. But I agree (laughs) with what what they're saying here is that that should happen. Absolutely. Let me read that line again because I butchered it. And I think... Um, Chris is probably beating his head against his desk right now. <laughs> Countries can respond to streaming's homogenized algorithmic playlist culture. I think that's brilliant. Yes, absolutely. So I, I would love to see that happen. And let's see what we can do to make that happen. So on that uh, on that note, Jay, let us wrap up this episode of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. 115. How does that happen, Jay? My goodness. <laughs> Good God, I can't believe it's been that many, but it has been. Oh. Of course, you're at number what, no, 500 I, on, on your music biz? Oh, we're well over 500 on Music Biz Weekly, but in Mike, you know, I'm the new guy. Mike was doing it for a couple hundred episodes before <laughs> I joined. You know, we've been doing it, I think, eight years together. But look, you and I built this together from, from the ground up, and I know we've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. It's one of the highlights of my week. I can't wait to do it. You know, I came back from the airport and I rushed home and we're doing this in the afternoon where we normally do it in the morning. But, um, I, I can't imagine a weekend, you know, uh, where we don't, I mean, at some point, you know, we'll be in an old folks home and, and I'll be saying, oh, I can't do it. I got bunions or whatever it is, but, um, I appreciate you and I can't wait to do this every week. I have so much fun, not only doing the, the podcast and having this conversation, but the other thing that has just been surprising to me is 
just the sheer level of feedback mm-hmm. that you and I get from, from some pretty important people sometimes will send us a little note and say, hey, you got this right yeah. or you got this wrong sure. and I'd like you to do more of this or hey, have you thought of that? And look, we don't pretend we're the smartest guys in the room, but I'll tell you, we're two of the most curious. Yes. And we're always out there looking for things. And like even this week, I learned so much from reading these stories and then you and I kind of riffing about them. It's just so much fun to do. And I, I am so fortunate that we have such a great audience that reaches out to us. It's just been you know, absolutely so much fun. There's not a day go by that, that, that you and I don't appreciate what we have. So thanks for listening in. Joy J and I certainly appreciate it. Big thanks to Banzoogle, Hypebot and Bands in Town for really helping us put the whole show together and making it happen. We really appreciate that. Yes, and, and again, appreciate for the feedback. We, we learn so much from the people that listen in and, and educate us. Reach out to us. Absolutely. We actually respond. We certainly we do. We respond to every single note that sent our directions. And it's not always, you know, executives at music companies. Sometimes it's just people saying, Hey, you know, yes. I, I listen to you, uh, you know, when I'm walking the dog in the morning and I like that thing. Exactly. And if you're in town in Santa Monica this coming week for Music Tectonics, hopefully we will bump into you there. And don't forget, Jay is always buying drinks at that at events like that. So if Mike's bringing his credit card, right. come to that Merc- Mercury Autos thing at the uh, on the fourth. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Um, we'll be there, too. And uh you never want to miss a conversation with Murray. That's exactly right. So on behalf of my good friend and brother, Jay Gilbert, thanks for listening in. We certainly appreciate it. We'll see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.